0: so that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Kian, it's good to have you on the show.
1: Hey, Michael. It's so lovely to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. So we can talk about many things because you've got quite a eclectic resume. Maybe as a start, talk the audience through your background so they know the source of your viewpoints.
1: Yeah, so I've spent my entire career in innovation, um, early in, in venture capital in London and Shanghai for many years. Then I was a visiting professor uh, at a business school at the age of 25. And then I ran a startup for many years that was disrupting um, the consumer sporting goods business. And then for the next decade, I um, was working in disruptive innovation, working as an executive director at the XPRIZE Foundation, designing moonshots to solve grand challenges for humanity. So I am passionate about solving problems and using innovation in all its creative ways uh, to, move humanity forward towards an abundant uh framework of thinking
0: now before i did this uh, interview discussion podcast i actually spoke to bull Sony, who worked at bcg and i told him i'm speaking to the co-author with keith and he knows keith well and he said i must tell you to give keith his well wishes
1: oh thank you so much i'll definitely pass on the words
0: So now let's start off with that. We can talk about many things, but I want to start off with uh, something I saw in one of your recent uh, pieces of work with Keith, where the, the tagline was how radical adaptability separates the best from the rest. Now, as a starting point, we all know what Darwin said. It wasn't the smartest. It wasn't the prettiest. It wasn't the strongest. It's the ones who could adapt. We know that. We're taught that at a young age. We accept it. But why don't organizations practice it?
1: Because it takes hard work to consistently adapt. um, And it requires a not only a mindset to think differently, but also the practice, uh, building up the muscle to do that. I actually want to share with you um, an example from Darwin that you just brought up. So uh, your listeners may know that Charles Darwin um, developed the theory for natural selection, and he did it early in his career, uh, I think in his 20s. And then he uh, researched that for the next 30 years or so. But by the time he had gotten into his 70s, um, he felt that he was a complete failure in life and he died a very unhappy man. And uh, what led Darwin to develop the theory for natural selection, but he himself was not able to adapt his way of thinking to think that he had transformed the world. And part of that has to do with our mindset of how we are constantly thinking about um, the future. And I'm a futurist by training. What that means is I help identify trends that allow organizations to leverage potential threats um, and changes in the future into opportunities. And um, many organizations don't think this way because it's a lot easier to just focus on the here and now and to react to change. Whereas uh, we believe that in order to really thrive in an uncertain world, you have to be constantly proactively anticipating change and staying ahead of the curve. Otherwise you're constantly reacting. So this concept of adaptability is one that is, is one that's reactive rather than one where we believe really, uh, successful organizations need to be, which is proactively looking for that change. And um, a lot of organizations just don't have the right culture, incentives, and behavior to really think this way. And that's why so many of them were caught flat-footed by disruptive changes, and especially in the pandemic era. So that's a little bit of why we started doing this research to figure out how do we help organizations really thrive um, and what is the leadership mindset that uh, teams need to develop in order to um, practice this muscle for what we call radical adaptability.
0: So I was talking to a client who I've known for a long time because previously I used to be a strategy consulting partner. And I knew this guy when he was the chief financial officer of a large resources company. And he's now the CEO. And 10 years ago, when I spoke to him, he was telling me how much they're changing, they understand, they have to adapt. And I think it was about a month ago, I ran into him again and I asked him, and I said, what are you guys doing? And basically he told me they're doing the same things. (laughs) So in 10 years, they're doing the same things, but he's telling me they've changed a lot. But I'm thinking you're in the same minds, you have the same workforce, you haven't actually changed anything, you're just doing more of it, and maybe you're a little bit more productive. So the question here is built off this anecdote, is everyone I speak to tells me they are changing. They all think they are adapting. They think they have the tools. But when you step back over a 10-year cycle, you really see very few companies actually adapt. So why do executives get caught into this trap? We spoke about why people don't change. But for those who think they are changing and nothing's really happening, how can they break that paradigm?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because... Uh, Keith uh, Farazi, my co-author, and I have been talking about these disruptive changes for the last couple of decades. He yeah. in the space of leadership and behavior change and I in the space of, of technology and innovation. And we've been helping our clients for a couple of decades now think about how to leverage these things. But um, for, for a long time, these were, let's call them nice to haves than yes. critical must haves. And the pandemic really forced a lot of people to um, rethink what they had to prioritize, and f- suddenly our our inboxes got very very yes. busy over the last two years because they started really paying attention to it. Um, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a study that we did uh, with Dell, and um, we found out that eighty percent of businesses thought that they had radically shifted their business model. Yes, and that's this probably was so. interesting because <laughs> you know they had digitalized their business. Yes, they had created a uh, some sort of a virtual platform. And uh, the truth is, in retrospect, after two years of research, we found very few companies, at least very few established organizations that had radically reinvented their business services or model uh, as a result of the pandemic. Some had. And as you can imagine, startups and younger companies are much more nimble and willing to innovate and shift. But for established companies, it was really difficult. So for these executives who you mentioned that they're changing, what are they really changing? Um, Are they changing? Um, how they're approaching the entire business, their assumptions, um, their their strategies, or are they just putting a veneer on top of what worked in the past and calling it digital change?
0: Yeah, what you say is very true. For most companies, what they've done is they've kept their business model in place, but they've digitized it. And for many of those companies that have digitized an old business model, really, they've built an app. And they've considered an app being digital and they consider digital being a new business model but it's really a faster version of their old business model so they're going to fail even faster
1: absolutely absolutely there's a great example a company that we we've done work with in the past uh, G- uh, general motors and as you know mary Bar- barrow the yes. ceo last year made a huge announcement to take um gm into a uh, electric vehicle future and and uh, make all their vehicles ev by 2035. now if you go back to the early days of gm over 100 years ago Uh, the founder of GM was trying to create something to replace um, horse-drawn carriages and wasn't quite sure if that was going to change. Um, And we spent a century thinking about um, uh, uh, combustion engines as a way of of transportation. And the leadership team at GM over the last couple of years said, well, what business are we really in? Are we really in the business of creating combustion engine vehicles or are we in the business of transportation? And if we're in the, in the business of transportation, then what does it matter um, if w- how we get from point A to point B? So the, the real question I think executives and entrepreneurs need to ask if they're trying to go through this process of transformation and, and reinvention of their business is to ask, what business are you really in? Yeah. Are you in the business of your current services and products and you're just adding a new uh, channel, digital channel to access customers? Or can you step back and rethink your entire offering so that you're tapping into solving a problem for the customer regardless of what your products and services you're currently offering? And I think very few people do that because A, it's exhausting. It takes a lot of work. um, And it does require you to step back out of your comfort zone and get insights from different people, perhaps external to your organization to really get the ah ahas for you to say, uh, you know, I think we need to make a shift. And when you're deep in day-to-day management management, of of an enterprise or a team, um, you don't give yourself enough time and permission to step back and think through all these things that really are critical. And I do believe that the pandemic um, had a silver lining that it made us all reassess uh, our assumptions. And I think this is the one key assumption that I I, I hope all companies uh, consistently reassess going forward which is what business are we really in?
0: So this is a good question, right? What business are you really in? But, you know, this is something that I think Theodore Levitt brought out in the 1970s, seminal piece. Everyone knows this. Everyone who's ever been to any version of a business school, ever sat in a business conference, knows this is the most important question. So working with clients, why is it they drift away from the central question?
1: Well, I think it's also because they've been taught to focus on a solution so let's say they have a a strategic team meeting and they decide that they're going to do this and they set their sight on that particular goal and they're very focused on it and they're not willing to um, look into how those how how that goal really fits into reality and many are not willing to change paths and pivot when they get new information and so they filter out the noise because they think they need to focus on getting, um, you know, to X and, and building the next best, um, toast slicer, but yep. they, they, and, and that's, that is a, a critical, let's say, um, success factor for individuals who want to accomplish a goal, but it's a blinder that it sets people out from saying, well, this isn't really what we should be doing and we should pivot. And so, uh you know, it's kind of like the yin and yang. It's a double-edged sword. It's good because you're focusing on this particular problem, but you're so focused on it that you refuse to listen to what the world is saying, um, even if it's not very loudly speaking.
0: I like that. That's a very well said. Building on that, I think, do you think to some degree we may be put too much pressure on CEOs to come up with these strategies that, you know, shatter the paradigm And are we giving maybe boards a bit of a pass here in the investment community, which to some degree pressures CEOs to deliver repeatable earnings and doesn't give them the room to do these remarkable things?
1: I love that question. Um, We're not superhumans. We've all realized in the pandemic that um, we we are all uh, fallible humans and we have challenges on day-to-day basis, including CEOs. And if we are putting all the pressure Um, for corporate success and earnings on one individual at the top to come up with these breakthrough paradigms. um, That is a recipe for not only uh, exhaustion, but also disaster. And I think it's really critical that we rethink how we innovate and how we collaborate, which is a big part of our research and a big part of our book is how do you come up with ideas and solutions collaboratively as a team? How do you crowdsource these ideas internally and then external to your organization and your team to really identify where the next trends are? And that I think is really the paradigm that's going to make it uh, sustainable for teams and companies to consistently iterate, pivot, try new things, learn, and have the resilience to be able to constantly move forward. If you put all the pressure on one person, yeah, there are some superhuman CEOs um, yes. that we know of, like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and others, but they're far and few in between. So rather than trying to find that unicorn, how about we instead um, build our, our teams to have the right skills so that they can consistently deliver these kinds of results? And that's what we've been focusing on in our research for the last two years.
0: I like it because oftentimes there's a lot of pressure put on the CEO but they're not the only and often not the most important player. Because in some countries, the boards are powerful depending on the structure of the boards. I mean, if you look at, for example, Germany, where you have labor committees sitting on the board with veto bearing power, um, you know, that's difficult for German companies to go all in on EV when you're gonna lose half your labor force and you've got the labor committee with a veto-wielding vote.
1: Yeah, I think you know th- this example of Germany has a very inclusive management model, and um, what the lesson I take from that, which is is sort of the best practices that we've identified around uh, collaboration, is that um, nobody has all the perfect right answers, and yes. so if you can team out, which is what we call this idea of identifying um, new ideas and processes outside of your immediate Uh, problem-solving team I think you can crowdsource the world's genius to get better ideas and then b get buy-in from people who you need um, inside and outside your uh, ecosystem to accomplish great things and we've been we've been talking a lot about how do we make work more inclusive and one of the things that the pandemic did was it gave everybody insight into each other's lives as you can see you know through our conversation you can see into my living room And um, this idea of wanting a voice at the table is now part of the conversation in business. And if businesses want to attract great talent, they have to rethink um, how they are including these voices within um, their strategic decision-making processes. And this example of Germany with the the, uh, labor management uh, uh, boards being involved in decision-making While it might slow things down a tiny bit, the reality is that once the team makes that decision, it's a much more inclusive decision and everybody is moving forward um, in the same direction as opposed to having contradictory alignments. And so we discovered in our research that uh, companies that were very successful in the last two years of the pandemic era, they had a different model of how they collaborated. Mm -hmm. And they were really thinking about how do I get the most voices involved? So typically you might say, let's start a meeting, uh, to collaborate and invite six people. Yes. And the reality is that 74% of the people, uh, are per our research are conflict avoidant They are not going to raise, um, yes. their voice in a meeting if they don't feel like that is the right space for them to say it. Now imagine all the great ideas that you're losing out on. And so yeah. we, we talk about in detail, of how do you create the most effective collaborative exercise? We can talk about that. But the idea is by creating this inclusion and getting people involved in the decision-making process early and often, you're likely to get more purposeful results um, and more cohesive communities who will get your team to go further than you would individually on your own.
0: Now, I want to build on something you said because I think it's quite critical. We talked about inclusiveness and so on, right? And I like that idea. I think no one's going to debate this. But too often the debate around inclusiveness ends at people being comfortable, as opposed to saying, we wanna get them comfortable so they can speak up and give their thoughts and get the company to go in a different direction. Because I feel that it's become touchy feely when you can actually measure inclusiveness based on how many people are commenting, when are they commenting, is there dissent that's respectable? Do you feel that maybe we've gone too much on sort of not measuring inclusiveness in a productive way? Well, let me give
1: you a tool how to do that. Um, And uh, I I, I identify with what you say. And so instead of just coming up with it in terms of um, qualitative um, touchy-feely parameters around inclusivity, we actually have identified how companies can do this in a way that is measured. So so the next time you have a meeting and you're trying to get good ideas, instead of having an all-town, hall meeting with like 500 people or whatever number it is, start your meeting uh, with just a a brief introductory overview of the problem, like 10 minutes, and then go into very small group uh, format conversations. And, you know, we have the technologies on Zoom and Microsoft Teams to do that now. So go into small breakout rooms of no more than three or four people each. And the reason that's important is because, A, it does create that psychologically safe space where people can share their opinions and also uncensor their biases and share ideas around what they think may or may not work. Now then this is the next critical point. You have to have a shared document, let's say a a Google document or a SharePoint document that's in the cloud and this team is uh, actually recording their input around this particular problem set that was identified at the beginning of the meeting and they're documenting it in uh, this this shared document. Now imagine if this is happening across 20 or 30 or 50 or however many small breakout rooms you have, all of a sudden the team decision maker who calls the meeting back after the, the, the breakout session has hundreds of ideas that have been recorded by people who've been able to share their opinion around a particular topic. Now, as the decision maker, it's your responsibility to go through this document and say, I've heard all these voices, now I'm going to circle the ones that I think are most important, and I'm going to call a meeting around that and solve that problem. So what you've done now is actually you've given everybody an opportunity in a very small breakout room to share their opinion, feel that their voices matter, and now they've recorded that on a Google document so that there is accountability and you can measure how many ideas came out of this kind of asynchronous collaboration model. And so you're now making inclusivity not just a nice to have, but actually critical because you're hearing everybody in your organization who's involved in this particular problem you're trying to solve with having a voice involved with with the solution. That is so powerful in terms of focusing your community, your stakeholders, your employees on a particular purpose, and um, you can reach exponential results as a result of that.
0: I love this example because it's a measurable version of inclusiveness and I remember many years ago we were doing an innovation strategy for a fairly buttoned down company and they asked us how do we come up with an innovation strategy and I said well not me only I was part of the team Um, what if you simply crowdsourced it from your employees so give them a very rough brief because if you give them a too detailed brief you put too much guardrails and then all these people started sending in ideas through, it wasn't Google Docs, it was some version of Microsoft then. And they came up with something like 20,000 ideas, which then a comedy was put together to weed down the ones that seemed practical. From there, they broke it down to the ideas that made sense that they could roll out through the OPEX budget. And those that needed a CAPEX budget attached to that. Then they had this competition whereby the teams had to go up and defend their ideas to all the employees. Management was not going to decide this. And it's a perfect example because you get complete buy-in mm-hmm. and you Absolutely. get so many ideas you have never even thought about. And Absolutely. you know, I, the reason I'm bringing up the story is because for too long, businesses have operated on a model that they knew everything. That's right. And they had to tell everyone, including the employees. But now it's almost as if management's job is to get out there, get the idea and see how fast we can react to a good idea. 100%
1: agree with you. Absolutely. Uh, we all we you know we were raised in this model um, over the last uh, 50 years since the middle of the 20th century uh, of this particular way of working in the, in the industrial era and the boss was always right or you had to know always what was correct and um, we've discovered that not everybody has all the answers and again humans are fallible and we we have vulnerabilities as we saw in the pandemic mm-hmm. even the most powerful CEOs had difficulty. Um, with their own emotional and, and mental, uh, mental anxiety levels to make sure everybody is safe. And so we're all humans. And so uh, we are so much more stronger as a team um, and resilient as a team if we think about how do we get the best ideas um, from everybody else rather than just uh, within the four walls of a particular office. Now, again, we've been talking about these ideas for over a decade. This is not new, but people actually implement them. And now we have these technologies that everybody has access to through Zoom and Teams that you can crowdsource ideas from the the world's genius. My team works for me remotely across the world in in Southeast Asia, in, in, in Mexico, and on the East Coast of the United States. And I'm able to tap into their cognitive intelligence to solve problems for me. And so it doesn't matter if they are located within a particular geography, now I can find the world's best minds. But in order to do this, your leadership, your CEO really needs to say, I know what I don't know and I respect that and I want to make sure that our organization gets the best ideas possible. So let me reframe how we think about innovation, how we think about collaboration and how we think about problem solving. And if your CEO and your leadership team gives the organization that permission, I promise you a thousand flowers will bloom.
0: Yeah, we've seen it, right? Is this direct evidence of that? It's not uh, things that you can contradict. We've seen the most successful companies are the ones who go for this model of the leadership team being shepherds as opposed to being a command and control center. know, there was a time when I was a management consultant and it was a big deal to have a command and control center when you're launching a product. And you spend six months to 24 months planning something, you then roll it out and you wait for the dollars to come in. And today you're seeing consumer products companies responding in a month, unheard of. And and it's what you said, we have the technology now so we can act on it. So what it also means that it's not just an American capability, you're gonna see competitors rising in China. I actually remember when someone telling me that, uh, this was many years ago, I think it was 2000, that it's okay if we outsource our creative capabilities to the Chinese. They can make things, but they don't understand American consumers. But then they invented TikTok, which clearly understands how Americans view videos. And, and you know it's a good example, TikTok wouldn't have existed 30 years ago, because all that know-how would have been concentrated amongst a few companies in the United States, but digital has allowed it to go global. And you now face global competitors. It's not just this is the American way or the Canadian way. It's about if we're going to compete in the digital era, we can expect competition from anywhere. We have to be ready for
1: that. And and that requires a different mindset. So 20 years ago, I uh, worked for the first ever Chinese venture capital fund in Shanghai and uh, it was an incredible opportunity. Yes, um, and, uh, you, uh, you know, it was a very different world 20 years ago. And uh, my bosses there kept telling me to look for business models that worked in, in the U.S. and Europe and bring them over to China. And the reality is that we're now having reverse innovation. I mean, innovation yes. is happening all across the world. And um, it's, it's localized for that particular cultural segment. And I think that's, that's amazing and that's beautiful. What that means, the counter side to that, like you mentioned, Michael, is that that creates a lot of competition to how we have thought about business historically here in the United States. And so if we continue to rely and think that we have the best ideas within the four walls of our company, within our 20 mile geographic radius, um, within our own minds, that's a huge limiting factor uh, in terms of success, because I promise you there are hundreds of thousands of other entrepreneurs and business leaders across the world who think differently. And they're tapping into this genius worldwide to solve for X. And so if you don't look for these opportunities outside of your immediate team, uh, you're going to fall behind.
0: Well, it makes sense, right? In sports, I'm a big soccer fan. If you want to raise the standards of a soccer team, you make them play tough competitors. You don't make them play weak competitors. So if you want to find the most innovative solutions to a problem, you've got to go to where the problem is worst. And I remember I was traveling in Kenya once. I was there for like a month and I was on this consulting engagement and I was shocked at how advanced online banking is through SMS. You can do your entire banking through SMS in Kenya. And then I came to Canada and I can't do one transaction over SMS. And you wouldn't think you'd find that in Kenya. I mean, no offense to Kenyans. I'm not saying anything negative. And what I'm saying is that we just have the mentality that we have better systems in the West and we're trying to export our thinking into new markets when maybe we should be thinking about how do we find those great business models?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, this kind of goes back to your first question around Darwin and adaptability. And yes. the question is, are American companies or Western companies going to innovate and um, adapt and evolve in a way that um, they previously didn't have this level of competition. And what does that mean for them now on the global scale and also using these um, all these technologies that are now democratizing access to so many different kinds of tools and making it inexpensive for entrepreneurs to enter new incumbent industries. And so it's a total mindset shift. And um, my hope is that um, that business leaders all across the world, but also specifically here in North America, really rethink how they are approaching problem solving, how they're approaching collaboration, how are they approaching um, building teams that can really accomplish uh, extraordinary things. And um, we've we've learned, we've been forced over the last two years in the pandemic to innovate within a proverbial box yeah. uh, like on Zoom right now. And um, I think that has been very powerful for a lot of companies. And now they're tempted to go back to the office and they're kind of you know, ready to go back, but I hope that they don't lose the lessons learned from the last two years, because if they do, um, there's gonna be a lot of other competitors worldwide who are more than happy to uh, walk into that market and take a bite out of their lunch.
0: And I think something that you've probably also seen and building on this point you made is that previously innovation and capitalism tended to be very patriotic. It tended to be geographically based. And we was speaking to a banking executive a few years ago and he was telling me how proud they are of being a UK bank. And then I pointed out that the majority of your consumers are in China and uh, the majority of your shareholders are in China. It seems inevitable at some point, the majority of your executives are going to be in China. So at what point do you stop being a UK bank? And it's already happened. And the point I'm trying to make here is that One of the things we tend to ignore in the way we approach capitalism is that we do have these blinders on of thinking about us as being a certain geographic company. And we set in place those limitations. But the way the world is shifting, the right mindset is to just be a company, an automotive company, as opposed to being a German automotive company. If Porsche sells most of its cars in China, is it a German company or a Chinese company? And where should it have its research centers yeah i think this
1: is uh, a a complex philosophical question that i actually love um exploring and there's no one right answer uh, and, uh, and you know obviously the world is evolving in a way because of um geopolitical trends of yes. trying to divide us move into um different uh, let's say spheres of influence whether that's on the internet um, having different technology platforms uh, in, in, in the U S or, or the West or versus, uh, Asia or elsewhere. And, um, the world is kind of pushing us into this mindset of you're either with us or you're against us. Yes. And, um, I really, you know, I've lived abroad for many years. i speak five languages and I'm very proud to be American. Um, but I also really, uh, see, um, the importance of living in the gray and not, Mm-hmm. Um, having to choose between black or white of uh, with us or against us, but rather I see the beauty and in innovation at el- elsewhere in China and the Middle East and in, in, in Africa, I spend a lot of time in. And uh, I, I, I applaud all of this. I think it's good for the world to lift our collective mindset of abundance um, and help us narrow our thinking away from a world of scarcity so that we can try to slowly move away from this bifurcation that politics is pushing us through, which I don't actually think is healthy. And so I think living in the gray is, um, a good place to be. And I think it's actually really healthy as an entrepreneur, as an innovator, because, um, we've learned that our assumptions are not always based in reality or based in fact, and the, the pandemic um, showed that to us and made us reassess all of our assumptions about how we live and how we work and how we learn and how we socialize. And so my, my hope is that we will constantly test out, again, what business are you in? What are those your key assumptions you're making? And that requires business leaders to live in the discomfort of being in the gray zone. And, uh, I, I, and so I think it's very healthy to, to see these innovation models blossom in other parts of the world, and um, to really I encourage entrepreneurs and, and innovators to, to step back from the brink of saying, this is right, or that is wrong, or, you know, th- this model is perfect for our world, or, and, and that is not, because I think that's where the interesting interactions and innovations really come from.
0: You said it very well, and the reason I asked this question is because you said, what business are you in? But too often, companies say, we are an American automotive company when you are just an automotive company, when you actually in the business of transportation, and you'll be in the business of transportation wherever you can create the right kind of customers, whether in the US, UK, India, Philippines, wherever it is. But it's one of those things that people do without thinking they're doing it. They box themselves in geographically. So switching gears a little bit here, right? Hopefully, if there's wood here, I'll touch it. Hopefully covid is coming to an end and we're gonna put it behind us. We can always hope there's some version of normalcy coming up. So a lot of companies were turbocharged because they were suited to the environments that COVID flourished under, like Peloton, for example. So they have what I would call a false sense of success because they were never really successful. Circumstances gave them success. What are some of the hallmarks of companies that are going to have sustainable success at adapting?
1: Well, I I, I love this question specifically around Peloton because I think uh, one of the most critical leadership traits that companies can develop is this is this is this skill set of foresight, which we talk a lot yeah. about in, in strategy. And I think companies that are able to to look into the future and read the early tea leaves of change are the ones that are going to be designing futures that are sustainable for their industries. And we saw companies across the world who um, had very profound foresight practices and were able to anticipate what was happening in the pandemic and thrive in the last two years. And yes. then there were those who weren't. And Peloton, like you mentioned, has, um, it was a company that really benefited from the circumstances of the moment but they actually then uh, were not able to practice foresight because they were not able to foresee that a booming demand was going to create bottlenecks and supply chain issues that would ultimately um, have, you know, very difficult ramifications on their business. And then once the the work from home restrictions were lifted and we started moving into this hybrid world, people started to go back to the gym and that there'd be less demand for at-home equipment. That to me is like a basic, um, a basic yes. knowledge of strategy, and and they failed in that, um, and they failed to be able to see advance and what the ramifications would be, and how they would how it would actually act if some of these potential scenarios came to pass. And so, one of the things that um, we are uh, uh, advising our clients is really how do you develop this foresight practice and skill set within your existing team. Now, you've been in consulting, and you know that a lot of companies will sometimes. Outsource this 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 yes. strategic uh, process externally, um, and that's certainly one way to do it. But instead of um, outsourcing it, why not build the skill set within your own team um, on a monthly basis to be able to really build that muscle, so that you can have a better angle to see what's coming around the corners. I think that is really critical uh, for organizations to be able to kind of see into the future and not get caught flat-footed like the examples of Peloton and many others.
0: Now, what's interesting about the discussion is I've spoken to many, many great leaders like yourself in business, whether it's Gary Hamel, Ramchara, many CEOs and so on. And they all, the conversation always comes back to this point is that what is the intuition and judgment of the leader? That's gonna determine everything. And too often, many companies outsource innovation to consulting firms. But I don't think you can outsource innovation to a consulting firms. So I was a strategy partner and I can tell you, you, you shouldn't do that because while consultants can optimize certain things, that, that kernel of the idea that's going to spark a product or a service, that's not something that is outsourced. But yeah. too often people do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, consulting firms uh, have a, play a very strong role and, and they can be um, good guides in yes. shepherding um, tools and knowledge and processes uh, to to come up with good solutions, but they can't do it in abstract on their own. They have to leverage the knowledge of um, the management teams internal to the company and also who has uh, really the expertise around their product and their consumer and what the yeah. consumer is trying to solve for. And so, uh, yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of companies outsource their innovation capabilities to consulting firms and it hasn't exactly worked out um, and they do that sometimes because uh, they want to um, you know they, they want to focus on the here and now and, and yes. innovation oftentimes doesn't have a direct ROI this quarter or next quarter especially if you're trying to think about disruptive long-term innovation rather than thinking about you know smaller incremental innovation and so um, companies don't offer, don't oftentimes create the right incentives for this kind of bold thinking and innovation for long-term sustainability to happen internally amongst every leader and every team, because that's not what they're measured by, usually. And so um, companies as a result then outsource that kind of thinking to consulting firms. And then the consulting firm will deliver a report or a process. And then it never really gets truly implemented internally because it didn't have buy-in and it didn't, it wasn't built from from the inside. And I think that's
0: a big problem. So talking about anticipating the future, what do you think are the best practices for leaders that have been effective or teams that have been effective at building, not just a process, the mindset, I would say, of
1: yeah. looking at Yeah, I love future. that. So, so in our book, we talk about this, this, this skill set of developing foresight within your team. And uh, it's, a, it's a very simple three-step process. One involves detection of the early signals of change. And I can teach you how to do that very quickly. The second step is is assessing how important these changes are to your business. And the third step is developing a action plan, what do you do about it. So uh, one really good way to to practice this is within your existing team, um, assign everyone on your existing team to a potential variable that might impact your business. So for example, It could be a technological change, it could be changes in consumer behavior, it could be changes in regulatory policy. And ask everybody in your team to just track one of these changes over the course of a month. And they do this by following experts on Twitter or uh, on social media or reading magazines. And the whole idea is that everybody on your particular team is going to develop a little bit of expertise on this one domain. And then at your standard monthly meeting, um, just devote 30 minutes to this exercise and ask your team to share any insights that they learned that they think could be um, significant in their business in the next 12 months. And as a team, you'll decide if this has a high likelihood of change. And if so, then um, you should develop a uh, a scenario plan of what you would do in case this were to come to fruition.
0: Before Uh, you continue, Kian, it's very interesting. I want to paraphrase this to the audience can practice this themselves. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, as an example, if I'm having a meeting with my team, I'll decide that the variable I'm going to focus on is the price of our products. Let's assume it's a commodity market sets the price. So for one month, I'll be going in and reading what Bloomberg experts are talking about, pricing, where they think the price is going to go. I'll talk to our suppliers, I'll talk to our customers to ask them, you know, what happens if the price goes up by 10%. What's the contingencies? What's the backup? Do you want to renegotiate contracts? And then I'll come back at the end of the month and I'll give an update to my team saying, hey guys, this is what people are telling me. If prices go up by more than 70%, our 10 biggest customers are telling us they want to renegotiate prices. And then what you're saying is as a group, we should decide which of these variables is so important and significant to the survival of the business or the business to thrive that we should have a contingency plan in place
1: absolutely and uh, and it's not just a one- month process this is a sure. continuous process right but you just you know, this is just one example you do in one month and the idea is you know the future is never constant it always changes so you you know instead of just doing an outsource consulting um, exercise and strategic planning uh, and that you know is a one-off thing let's build the muscle inside your team so that you can think about this on a continuous basis uh, going forward I'll give you an example so uh, in the early days of the pandemic, Um, one of my friends, Jonathan Becker, who is the CEO of uh, the National Hockey League uh, team, Mm. the San Jose Sharks. Uh, You know, his team couldn't bring anybody into the stadiums because stadiums were locked down because of the pandemic. And that was their major source of revenue. So what do you do? And so uh, uh, Jonathan wanted to develop uh, potential uh, scenarios of how they would act because the, the, the circumstances were changing so quickly. So what he did was, He brought his team together and he said, I want you all to think about what are the various variables that could impact our business in the next 12 uh, to 36 weeks and how would we react. They developed a set of 30 different scenarios um, that they thought could potentially happen. Together as a team, they voted five of them as most likely scenarios. And of those five most likely scenarios, Jonathan said, okay, I I want us all to develop a action plan, a one page action plan if this future scenario came to to be, what would we do? And we would just execute this one page action plan so that we don't get caught red handed. And as a result of this exercise, not the team was developing this huge muscle of thinking about how to anticipate change and how to act in advance before it happens to the point that they were one of the first teams that were back on able to really succeed and thrive in this this world. And so this idea of outsourcing, this kind of strategic thinking is, I think, really dangerous because you're relying on an external firm or a partner to help you figure out what the future is. But the reality is it's your responsibility as a leader to make sure that your team has that capability internally so that you can constantly do this all the time.
0: I love that example because, you know, oftentimes... When you hear these examples, it's for a large company with $30 billion of revenue. And you think to yourself, yeah, but of course they can do it. The $30 billion. They can find ways to increase revenue, cut costs, and so on. But when you bring it down to a hockey league team, which is still large, but it's definitely something you can get your head around, you can then think about how to practically implement this. Now, the story you told me is quite interesting because I was speaking to Scott O'Neill, who used to be the CEO of the New Jersey Devils. And he was telling me that... uh, when COVID came along, obviously there was a lot of panic, right? Um, how do you get revenue, right? No one's going to games. No, you don't know when games are going to open up again. And the discussion we had was how to rethink what is a star athlete. And, and one of the concepts we came up with is a star athlete is really a role model. So they're managing a roster of role models mm-hmm. as opposed to athletes. Mm. And what would you do differently if you now thought about yourself as a talent manager for role models for young and old people? But the interesting thing about this is that you need to have the mindset of a leader to be open to trying as many things as possible, often keeping the things that work and discarding the things that go away. Because what often happens is that something becomes a best practice and you keep doing it and you close your mind to something that is yet to become a best practice.
1: Because, Absolutely. because this
0: example yeah. of how you were talking about getting each member of the team to pick a variable, going back to my mind, I'm thinking as a consultant, I know the typical way this would have been done is through scenario planning. Mm-hmm. But scenario planning has many, many, you know, problems in it. It doesn't work as well. But in this example here, you've almost built an emotional attachment to the concept With members of the team so that when they are going to be talking about the contingency plan, they're not waiting for a consultant to build this burning platform for them. You've built that into the psychology of the process.
1: Absolutely. You're giving ownership to the employees who are closest to the problem, right? And that is what entrepreneurs do at startups. And, uh, you know, oftentimes that gets a little bit muddled in larger organizations because of bureaucracy. And we saw in the pandemic that the teams that were most successful were the ones that were able to really pushed the problem solving down closest to where um, the employee had interaction with the customer and they were able to run very agile experiments and quick pivots and figure out what worked and what didn't work in short-term sprints. And um, this is normal for startups to operate this way, but it's not necessarily normal for a lot of um, more established companies and you know this is really the heart of how do you adapt, how do you thrive, how do you anticipate? you're constantly iterating. And it's not that you're, you know, in Silicon Valley, some people might say, you know, fail fast and move forward. And it's not you're trying to you're not trying to fail. You're trying to actually learn quickly so that uh, the next time that uh, a an experiment doesn't go successfully, uh, the impact on it is a lot less to you. And so you're constantly iterating and learning. And this is a different mindset than when you are an established organization that, like you said, has the fixed way of doing things because it's worked and you're just you know, locked into it. And so we think it's really critical for teams and organizations to to take the best elements of what we did during the pandemic and the the crisis period and in terms of crisis agile and make it sustainable so that you can constantly iterate and and experiment. Now, the one thing I'll say is that this experimentation is also like sometimes exhausting, right? You're always trying new things. And so you have to create space for your team to to be successful and, and they have to be resilient and they have to have downtime to really step back and say, okay, it's like going to the gym, you lift weights and then you have a rest day because your muscles need that. That's where the growth happens. Yes. And the same thing happens on, on these very agile, successful teams is that they're running really hard towards hard problems, but then they have downtime to recuperate and be able to build that muscle in the rest period so that they are more successful when they climb that next hill. Uh, of problem solving. And this this key part, this this key skill in developing team resilience was huge um, uh, in terms of our research, because oftentimes we think of resilience as an individual responsibility. Yes. Um, but we don't think about it as like, if we're trying to solve a problem, whose responsibility is it on a team that we all cross the finish line together? Is it the team leader's responsibility or is it my responsibility to make sure everybody has the baton and we're all doing this together? And the the research showed that the highest performing teams were those that had very resilient teams and practices and leaders were able to actually diagnose team resilience and then identify what it is and create opportunities to de-stress. This was really, really critical.
0: Yeah, I like that uh, because oftentimes when you look at business literature and even the definition of resilience, it has almost a pain component to it. Everything we talk about in business is using terminology from warfare, the painful side of sports. And what I find obviously missing is where's the joy in serving customers? Yeah. Where's the joy in working with a team of 10 people over three months and doing something that put a smile on the face of a three-year-old child?
1: Yeah, it's really important. It's really important. And, you know, we come to, we come to work with different levels of resilience. You know, some people have more social support at home, uh, and it makes their professional lives easier. Some people have more financial resources, and they make different decisions. But nobody's perfect, right? And we realized in the yes. pandemic this vulnerability, this veneer that we had that we always had to have a stiff upper lip in order to yes. to succeed in business it just went away because like that's just not how humans work, right? And so uh, the teams that were able to show sort of what was going on in their everyday lives um, and and learn from that and support each other and and, and boost each other's energy, I think was really key to what you just said around like making sure that we remember that, you know, uh, we're working with the team because A, we think this project is important and B, these are the people that we see oftentimes more often than than, than our spouses and our yeah. friends. And so how do we make sure that they're succeeding and we've got their backs?
0: Yeah, I think that sometimes gets lost in the whole discussion about being agile, nimble, flexible, and so on, is that at the end of the day, it's just a group of people that decide to stick it out together because they like working with each other and you wanna keep that going. Now, it's an interesting discussion. I wanna kind of wrap up here, but on a kind of a big point. Our CEO is a big believer in co-elevation and co-creation to the point that every idea that she and the company comes up with is developed with a client. It's built for a client specifically, and then rolled out to other clients. Now, I know that you guys are big believers in co-elevation. I'm going to spend some time talking about that because I love the concept. It seems intuitive, and a lot of people tell me they're doing it, but when I so keep talking about it, I know the practical elements are very different, and the philosophy is different. So let's talk through that because I think it ties together. It's one of the, the DNA in everything you're doing.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think one of the key things that we learned um, in the pandemic is you know, we're, we're reliant on each other's success in order to make the company successful. And, um, and you know, this idea of co-elevation is how do we make sure that we are not only tapping into the best ideas that we talked about earlier in terms of crowdsourcing, but also making sure that everybody's crossing this finish line together in the peak days of the pandemic or any crisis, it's very normal for you to say in your team, okay, John, you go do this, Mary, you do this, Tim, you do this, I'll do this, let's reconvene in 24 hours and figure out what needs to get done um, yes. because that's sort of what was happening in, in, in the peak days of the pandemic. So you had developed a social contract, an, an un, unspoken social contract of how you would behave to get through the crisis. Now, it's not common for teams in ordinary uh service of business to say that we have a social contract, but actually that's what we've discovered in, in, in our research that the most high-performing co-elevating teams actually have a social contract with each other on a continuous basis of how they will show up to work, how they will support each other through resilience, how they will show up to support each other through experiments and how they will make sure that, they again, I go back to this idea of how do we make sure we cross the finish line together. And it's a social ex- contract of, how we expect to behave as a team, how in terms of communication, in terms of transparency, in terms of setting ego aside and ideating ideas outside of our our core uh, group to figure out what happens best. And so this idea of co-elevation, I think is incredibly powerful. It requires that social contract amongst teams to say, this is what we believe and this is how we will show up to work every single day, even if we're not in the same physical office, but in the virtual or hybrid office, we will still show up in this in this particular way.
0: Now, this is a good example. I'm gonna make a very important point just so that any of the audience and listeners want to apply this, they can think about how to do it practically. Because I know many of them are gonna say, Well, I work at a company that has these amazing values, but what you're saying is that each team will have its own set of social values that's unique to them. Absolutely. This is the key part, right? Absolutely. Because yep. it's not being negotiated by corporate, put on a flyer somewhere and say, these are values, we agree to these things, but no one's vested in it. Each team can have some quirky values. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, and to them, know, and they you, love you, it.
0: You know, you could be anywhere at any
1: organization at any level. And let's say you're, you work at a, you know, a large organization with 20,000 people and you're uh, somewhere in the mid-levels um, of, of management or, 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 or work. And you may not have a whole lot of influence in terms of how um, that organization's culture is determined on a global scale or for the entire um, uh, employee base, but you do have impact on how you show up to work with your existing team. And this is actually what I want to share is that um, don't rely on your boss right now to say, we're going to do this. You need to be a change agent yourself and say, these are the best practices that I've I've learned or I've researched or I've found through, for example, our book or through uh, research that's available online and use that data point and go to your boss your team leader and say hey there are better ways of collaborating there are be- better ways of innovating can we run some experiments some a b experiments and see how we can do them better so you can be a change agent agent within the sphere that you have influenced which is your team and you can say we can do better we can be yes. better performing we can have a social contract of how we show up to each other and I promise you, your, your boss would never want to get in the way of good ideas and doing things more productively and better. They'll see you as a change agent and they'll say, full on, go for it. So uh, absolutely, regardless of where you are at, the, at, at any part of the organization, we believe that you can use this concept of co-elevation to make your team exceptional. And once your team is exceptional, it's not gonna take long before other people in the organization wanna see how they can em- emulate your success.
0: Yeah, and of course, when one member of the team transfers, they take that thinking and they seed it in another part of the organization. So I think for my company, we'll have a dance-off if everyone disagrees. That'll be part of our social contract. One minute dance-off, the best dancer wins. So coming up to wrap up things here, what advice would you have for listeners? So let's make it easy for them. Monday morning, 8 a.m. They love the concept. What can they do on Monday morning, 8 a.m. to get the process going?
1: So first thing I would say is um, reassess what it means to collaborate. And instead of having a meeting on Monday about collaboration or of a new problem, um, think about how you can do this um, on the cloud asynchronously using different tools and go to your boss and say, hey, I've done this research or I have read this online, I read this book. Um, It's a very effective tool of coming up with new ways of collaborating and co-elevating and figuring out ideas outside of our organization. Can we run a a small experiment that doesn't cost any money but it's an ideation exercise within our team and within our our maybe uh, tangent organization around this particular problem. So can I run this experiment and show them what the research is, how you would do it. And I promise you, they'll say, okay, let's try it out because these are the lessons that were very successful in the pandemic era um, in terms of teams working hybrid very effectively together. And let's not lose those tools and those uh, those wins when we quote unquote go back to the office. So that's the first thing I would say. I like that. Don't start collaborating just by having a meeting. Yeah. Figure out what the ideas, what the problem sets are first, and then call the meeting. The second thing I'd say is, um, you know, it, it's we have we have lived in a world where we have you know performed really well in the last two years, and sometimes it's been more transactional than not because of the nature of Zoom. So I think it's really critical to remember, as we talked about earlier, that we're all human beings after all. Yeah. We, all we all work in different capacities and have different um, uh, energy uh, banks. And yes. so one of the things I would recommend is to, re- to really um, create a behavior set that you're consistently trying to get to know your colleagues and your team better every single day. And one tool that we use um, through our practice is what we call uh, sweet and sour. So ask your team every day or every week, what's sweet in your life this week? What's sour in your life this week? And the idea is to get a concept, a connection to what's going on in their personal or professional lives, whichever way they want to share to figure out you know what's impacting their work. And I promise you, this will create this sort of uh, intimate bonds and this behavior and this culture that will allow you to feel that your team is much more effectively bonded together. So mm-hmm. that when you do have to face a, um, much more difficult project or hill to climb, you know you got each other's back. So that's the second recommendation is to really um, double down on emotional connectivity and getting to know your team better by using these small uh, small breakouts and also these, 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 um, these, these questions like sweet and sour. And then the third final thing I'd say is um, make sure that you are modeling the kind of behavior you want to see your team demonstrate in terms of resilience. So if you are a team leader, uh, I want you to think about uh, implementing this practice, which is diagnosing um, how, how your team's energy level is every two or three weeks and asking them a question from from one to 10, give me a score of how much anxiety or energy you have. And you'll see over time that people fall in a baseline and they'll have their own individual baseline. But over time, if somebody says, historically has been around like a six, and they say, today I feel like a three, yeah. now you know that there's something Is going on in their lives and you can try to figure out how we can plug that hole and help them cross the finish line together so as a leader you have to role model the behavior that you want your team to to demonstrate in terms of resilience and that does include uh, figuring out how to give them mental breaks and 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 enforcing breaks on their calendar so that they can rest and recuperate like they've gone to the gym so these three things i'd recommend right away i want to go back Uh, rethink how you do your meetings by having asynchronous collaboration meetings and suggest yes. that to your boss. Second thing is to double down on your emotional connectivity with your team using these kinds of sweet and sour questions. The third thing is to make sure that you have enough uh, resilience and energy stored in your, in your phone bank so that you can yeah. uh, consistently be able to pivot and innovate into the future.
0: I love it. You know what I really like about this? You're just talking about what does it mean to be a human leader? This is not something hard. It's not something you should suffer doing. It's something you should be doing anyway. And it's so simple to do. You're almost allowing yourself to see people for who they are. And that's like one of the most beautiful things you can do as a leader and a human being.
1: Absolutely. And I think by, by stepping outside of our own context and our own heads, we can see others as, as humans and let the great ideas that they have inside their minds and in their communities um, come to fruition. And we now have the tools to do that on scale um, versus just in the four walls of the office that we were previously limited to. And I think, um, you know, as we come into this new era of the post-pandemic business world, um, we're going to see so many great ideas come to fruition because of these new technologies. And I really hope that your uh, audience and your listeners will tap into these tools so that they too can be part of this world of abundance, rather than uh, being left behind by others who are really creating these very cool, amazing products and services by tapping into uh, their, their values and purpose.
0: Fantastic. That's a good way to end. Thank you so much, Kian. I think our audience is going to love this podcast. It's one of the better ones we've had. And I like how universal the messaging is. This will work anyway in the world.
1: Thank you. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Um, to A, do the research and B, bring it to fruition and share it with the world. Um, it, is, it is This is a universal message of, of human leadership and you can apply it to any context, any country. People all have the same values. As we, as we realized over the last two years, we all trying to lead better, productive, healthier lives for, for our friends and families and our communities. And you can apply this kind of um, thinking at any level of organization, anywhere in the world. Um, if you wanna learn more about our research, um, you're more than welcome to go to uh, go forward to where we actually have crowdsourced all the mm-hmm. research and it's available publicly for you to see. And um, if you're interested in, in the book, it's available um, at on, on any store, Amazon and bookstores across the world. We've also developed um, an eight part video course um, of all the main teachings of the book. And if you're interested in, in getting that access to that for free, just go to radicallyadapt.com and uh, you'll see uh, how to access that again. It's radicallyadapt.com. Uh, Michael, it's been such a pleasure to share this stage with you and thank you for having me.
0: Take care. We'll be in touch. Have a great day. You too. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.